0: North Untapped is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. A spectre is haunting employers and their media allies across North America. The spectre of quiet quitting. Understood as a phenomenon where young workers do not formally quit their jobs, but instead do just enough work to get by, there is little evidence that this has actually become a widespread practice. But it has nonetheless gripped the attention of a seemingly endless list of commentators and concerned bosses. Despite quiet quitting being a relatively new phenomenon, author Adam D.K. King recently explained in a piece for passage that although the pandemic and the subsequently tight labor market may have encouraged workers to re-evaluate their jobs, some of the conditions for quiet quitting are likely more dated. Furthermore, King writes, contained within the rallying cry to do no more than necessary is the germ of worker solidarity. He explains, quote, Quiet quitters recognize, if only implicitly, that competition between workers is a corrosive force that undermines the standards of all. For workers, cooperation is preferable to competition, Quiet quitters seem to intuitively understand this, even if they lack the collective coordination necessary to turn their online revolt into gains in their workplaces. I'm Alex Koch, Managing Editor of The Maple, and this week I'm pleased to have Adam on the show to discuss the quiet quitting phenomenon and what it means for workers. Adam, thank you very much for joining me this week. Thanks for having me. Uh, So we should note that Adam's piece on quiet quitting is part of his uh, newsletter called Class Struggle, which is available at Passage. Adam, can you tell us a bit about Class Struggle and uh, how it came about?
1: Yeah, So Class Struggle is a weekly labour newsletter that I write. It comes out every Friday morning at 8 a.m. from Passage. And it deals with contemporary labour issues, usually in Canada, uh, but sometimes internationally uh, in the United States, for example, and generally takes a Marxian political economy approach to labor and social policy. And then sometimes we do interviews with um, labor scholars or activists. So uh, for example, we do interviews with people who have recently organized their workplace, um, such as Chapters Indigo, for example. And then we do uh, interviews with um, scholars, economists, such as Jim Stanford or labor scholars, uh, such as uh, Charles Smith, or uh,
0: David Canfield, for example. Yeah, I'm always uh, really interested in the kind of um, diversity of topics that class struggle covers. It, it, you know, it takes on uh, a kind of more newsy approach, sometimes looking at recent organizing efforts by workers. But it also takes on with some of these larger, more theoretical questions like the the degrowth debate was it was a recent addition that was really good. Yeah. Um, Maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself as well, and like how you came to be interested in these topics, and like what your professional background is to to approach this this subject.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I did a PhD at uh, York University, like uh, so all good Marxists do in Canada, and um, I uh, in in my research in that capacity, I looked at um, deindustrialization and uh, corporate globalization in resource extraction, in particular. Uh, looking at nickel mining in in Sudbury and the surrounding region. And so I've just generally been interested in labor studies for a long time. Uh, In my professional capacity, I've uh, worked on various research projects, looking at employment standards enforcement in the federal jurisdiction in Canada, uh, looking at issues around um, indigenous labor relations and how those are regulated in so-called Canada, Um, and then uh, I also uh, work in the labor movement um, as a as a researcher professional.
0: So coming over to this topic of uh, quiet quitting and the the, the big panic <laughs> that it seems to have provoked. Um, so how did this all come about? Like, when did it start and how did this term become popularized?
1: Yeah, like all great things, uh, it originated on on TikTok. Um I'm showing my age a bit. I don't actually have TikTok, so it took me a while to find this thing and actually get to the original video that that uh, started all this. But it comes from a user uh, who goes by uh, Zed Leplin, I believe, and uh, he explained it as you know, not necessarily quitting your job, but dropping out of the hustle culture, I guess, where work defines your life. And in the video, he calls on others to sort of recognize that their worth in life is not defined by their labor output. So it seems to have taken off from there, uh, particularly among uh, young workers. And I'd say generally, at least in the online discourse, it sort of speaks to a desire for uh, less strenuous work lives that's really resonating with a lot of people right now. And You know, the post-pandemic economy really is fertile ground for this type of critique of work and of workplace expectations. Um, We already know from studies, you know, going back decades now even, that so-called workplace satisfaction and engagement are really low, uh, especially among new labor entrants. A lot of people are really dissatisfied with their work. And the tight labor market that's followed the pandemic has given workers new opportunities to express that and in some cases exercise power. And you know, on the other hand, it's likely encouraged bosses to intensify work. So we're hearing all kinds of stories about increasing reliance on overtime, for example, which is unsurprising that you know, if you have a lot of industries, um, low wage service work, for example, where employers are having to compete for workers for the first time in a very long time, uh, one of the ways that they deal with that is by intensifying the work for those that they do have. And you know, although nominal wages are rising at a fairly healthy pace, though so they're still being outstripped by inflation, um, the data shows that you know, employers really aren't raising wages anywhere near enough to attract the required labor. So in that kind of context, you know, workers' expectations grow. And I think that's generally good news.
0: So I guess it filtered that, you know, we have these material conditions that you've outlined that have, like, created real changes in the workplace. Uh, It made it onto TikTok. And now we have uh, these commentators some of the the responses and reactions that you uh, documented in your piece can you tell us about some of those and like what the kind of spectrum of mainstream response has been to this phenomenon yeah i think this has been interesting
1: you know as i say in the piece the attention that quiet quitting is getting might be in part a reflection of you know the late summer slow media cycle (laughs) but you know they need something to write about in late august But there's also been, you know, an interesting attempt to frame this as, you know, a generational conflict, which is nothing new. I mean, you can go back decades and find similar kind of moral panics about the fortitude and work ethic of young workers. This is common. Um, But what I would call the, the employer reaction so far has been especially interesting, if somewhat predictable. So, of course, you have figures like Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary calling quiet quitters losers and telling bosses to fire these people outright before they infect their workplace culture like a cancer. Um, You know, the thinking here, I guess, is that workers should put every effort into increasing the profits of people like (laughs) O'Leary. But then there's also been sort of what I would call like HR type responses, essentially a warning managers and bosses that that they'd better address workers' concerns if they want to retain skilled staff and, and maintain productivity. So, you know, insofar as you think HR is a benevolent force, you know, I suppose that isn't terrible. But I'm not terribly hopeful about this because, you know, there might be some sort of momentary reprieve for higher-paid office workers or something like this. But the second that the labor market starts to slacken at all, you're going to see any type of new frills kind of go out the window. Employers can dispense with that stuff when they no longer are dealing with a tight labor market. And then on the other hand, you've got some more, I don't know, I guess you call them enlightened entrepreneurial takes from people like Ariana Huffington, the founder of the Huffington Post, who is now some sort of tech CEO and self-styled, I don't know, lifestyle guru, I guess. Um, she wrote this widely read piece on LinkedIn that basically argued that quiet quitting amounted to, in her words, quitting on life, um, suggesting that workers uh, should, you know, find themselves in their work, a kind of lean-in approach. And she claimed, actually, that the tight labor market is the perfect opportunity to, you know, find your passion. If you don't like your job, just quit it. And as I say in the article, I mean, this is typical neoliberal mantra stuff, right? It's an individual solution to the collective problem of dissatisfaction with the contemporary workplace. We can't all quit our jobs. If we did, you know, who would pick up the trash and care for the sick? The fact of the matter is that most workers have next to no say about their work or how their workplace is organized. And when the conditions arise, like a tighter labor market for workers to say something about it, they tend to do that.
0: So, like your piece notes that there isn't actually really any hard evidence at this point that this trend is especially widespread. Um, like it, it was popularized through TikTok, so we, we we don't really know how many people are engaging in this activity. And then I guess, like, how would you even measure that? I suppose is is, is another difficult thing to to approach here. Um, but it does follow other workplace shifts that have happened. You mentioned the the so-called Great Resignation that has taken place over the past uh, few months and couple of years. Um, Could you describe, you've already mentioned this kind of tightening labor market as as being a factor in changing the nature of work. But how does that work? Like what what does that mean, a tightening of the labor market? And what does it like, uh, how does it impact work in practice?
1: Right. So, I mean, I think what's going on here has really kind of been percolating for a while. And, you know, through something like quiet quitting, it's largely symbolic and likely not widespread. But you know, I would say that it does point to something real that's that's going on here, that's underlying it. I mean, <laughs> to go with the general sort of TikTok, uh, you know, vibe here, you might call this a vibe, right? It's not uh, not something that we can necessarily measure at this stage. Um, off the top, I do think it. For some context, it's important to point out, and I keep trying to drive this home in various pieces that I've written and to anybody who will listen, that there's actually been no great resignation in Canada. This was a U.S. phenomenon last summer that was interesting, this record number of quits, you know, the quit rate went way up. But in Canada, that's never been the case. In fact, the job changing rate or the job leaving rate, which Statistics Canada measures in the labor force survey and that's the jobs report that comes out every month they've been showing for a while like before the pandemic that this was on a downward trend in Canada on any given week it's roughly three to four percent of people leave their jobs which is you know at an historic low so you know it's kind of uncertain why that is some people have speculated you know union density is higher in canada so maybe people stay in their jobs and fight for more rather than quit um i'm not entirely convinced by that argument you know other people have said well maybe maybe employers here are just a bit more responsive more likely to raise wages and offer other kinds of inward benefits to keep people around Again, I don't know, there's not a lot of evidence that Canadian employers are like that much more generous than American employers. So it's it's difficult to tell why exactly this is the case, but it does sort of suggest that there is a bit more potential here in Canada for workers to um, put the pressure on in the jobs that they have. So there's there's a couple of things, I guess, to note as, as background in, di- in addition to this dynamic. For one thing, the fact that, pandemic income supports were more generous here. I mean, they weren't, they could have been much better, but they were still nevertheless pretty good. CERB and then CRB that followed it. There is quite a bit of evidence that shows that workers took that opportunity, that little bit of financial breathing room that they had for the first time to reevaluate their career prospects, to uh, upgrade their skills or retrain. And when things opened up, there was um, an uptick in demand for things like higher wage, salaried, professional jobs. So a lot of people who maybe were stuck in in service sector or low-paid jobs before actually moved up the income ladder and had significant job mobility. So that's one thing to consider. And then when you combine combine this with the fact that there was a ton of pent-up demand For services during the pandemic right we were all at home couldn't go to a restaurant get your haircut whatever suddenly when everything opens you get this unique labor shortage in particular sectors of the economy so as i've pointed out before sometimes what's being called a labor shortage is not actually a labor shortage like the amount of labor available might have stayed the same but the demand went way up (laughs) so just because you can't meet the demand it's i mean technically i guess that's a labor shortage but not necessarily if you consider it against the dynamic of having been in lockdowns and then have this pent up demand uh, that's released during a reopening. So that is also playing into this. And then of course you have these really impressive um, organizing campaigns that are going on um, at Starbucks and Amazon in the United States, though it's not entirely confined just to them. And we're now seeing some of that spill over into Canada in, in British Columbia and Alberta, now, you know the organizing hasn't been widespread enough to have any real impact on union density. So in the United States, it continues to fall um, despite this really exciting new organizing. And hopefully it can reverse that trend, but right now there's no evidence that it is. But we do know that things like union favorability are way up. Everyone keeps citing this statistic in the United States. I think it's 68% of people approve of unions and that's the highest it's been since the 1960s. Um, we don't actually know what that dynamic looks like in Canada, because we don't track that in the same way that Gallup does in the United States, unfortunately. Um, but nevertheless, you have this organizing that's really inspiring a lot of people. And it's uniquely led by young college educated workers, people who are college educated, but downwardly mobile. I mean, this is kind of a new phenomenon, not the typical cadre of labor organizing historically. So, you know, these are people who are, you know, college education just hasn't panned out in the way that they suspected. Maybe they're carrying substantial student debt and, um, you know, they're choosing to stay put and organize in their workplaces. And so, you know, all of this combines to give you a kind of unique moment in North American political economy for a kind of labor upsurge, I think.
0: Super interesting. Uh, so much to, to consider there. And I, I add so much nuance to, to some of the headlines we see about this, uh, the, these changing trends over the past couple of years. I'm interested that you note know that the, you know, a lot of this uh, union uh, efforts has been driven by college educated people. Um, I'm kind of curious in, in terms of the, the quiet quitting trend. I mean, obviously we don't know where it applies because we, we don't have any hard evidence tracking it. But like, do you get the sense that this is more... Uh, uh, a, a tactic i suppose that could be employed by you know more work from home office job type people or could this also apply to people in say the, the retail sector or the food service industry where you know we might imagine management to be more you know immediately on hand than if you're working at a laptop from home like and and how might these two work environments um you know pan out with uh, with a quiet quitting uh, factor
1: Yeah, I mean, insofar as we're talking about something that's difficult to measure, it is tough to say, but I would say just by judging only according to folks who are making these viral videos, it seems to be coming from all corners of the labor market. So there's plenty of retail workers, you know, people at Starbucks making similar similar videos. And I don't think that should surprise anyone. I mean, one thing to note is that this whole Ariana Huffington idea that you kind of like take on the workplace culture and you lean into it and you sort of find yourself in work. I mean, that has permeated the entire uh, labor market, right? I mean, you're not a worker at Starbucks, you're a partner and you should believe in the brand and all of this kind of stuff. So there is a kind of expectation that you bring more than your labor to the workplace you know, you bring your heart and soul and all this kind of stuff. And I think what you're seeing is that a lot of people are like, well, no, actually, this is where I just bring my labor, I'd like to leave the rest of me at home. Um, So it's not surprising that it's, that it's fairly widespread, again, insofar as we can tell online. Um, And then there are all kinds of public facing jobs, where there is just record levels of overwork and burnout. So you can look at healthcare, for example, we're in a crisis of, of labor shortage and overwork in the healthcare sector, which has been deliberately caused by underfunding and sort of imposing a lean production model that, you know, they rolled out in auto factories first and then decided it would be a good idea to apply it to social services. Um, And that's having huge consequences for workers. So, you know, all the talk of, you know, essential workers and banging on pots and pans at 7 p.m., I mean, that's long ago ceased. And a lot of the um, stress of the pandemic is just present throughout the labor market. There's a lot of frustration out there. And unfortunately for a lot of workers, there aren't many outlets. You know, union density is is low in Canada and the private sector. It's just above 15 percent. So very Few people have voice at work or any opportunity to, um, you know, collectively express those frustrations and try to get some alleviation of them with their coworkers. Another thing I think that's important to point out is that uh, workplace surveillance has really shot up both during and after the pandemic. Um, that's the case for those who are returning to work or those who never left, right? If you're in a factory or a warehouse or driving a delivery truck, um, or those who are in some sort of, uh, work from home situation. So you've got teamsters out there fighting the introduction of cameras into delivery trucks. Um, you've got an intensification of work, uh, in warehousing and in food processing. And then for people who are at home, you've got all this like keystroke monitoring and all of these other various ways that employers monitor what you're doing, how much time you're spending on task, all this stuff. Um, You know, a lot of people talked about the sort of, the opportunity that work from home offered for more professional workers. But I think also it introduced a lot of um, surveillance and other ways that employers have been able to impose Uh, work intensification on people so i think part of what you're seeing here too is a reaction to that
0: interesting yeah so it it, it does seem to be applicable uh, right across the board then um in in both cases you also know in your piece that like those who are engaging in quiet quitting are not necessarily protected from being fired uh under the law uh, and especially if they're not in a unionized workplace tell us more about that and like how they could become protected uh to, to engage in this kind of tactic.
1: Yeah, well, as as I and a lot of others actually have pointed out, quiet quitting is sort of like an individual expression of a common union tactic called work to rule, uh, which is where union members basically only work um, according to the contract that they have. They only do the work that's stipulated in their contract, nothing more. So you uh, frequently hear of, of teachers uh, using this uh, when they're at a bargaining impasse with their employer. So they'll Maybe they'll grade papers, but they won't put comments or they teach the classes, but no extracurriculars, that kind of thing. The difficulty is that for non-union workers, there's virtually no protection against being fired in Canada. I mean, even for unionized workers who might engage in strike activity, that right, which work to rule, is actually considered a type of strike activity. The right to do those sort of things is very, very limited. So, you know, it's only when a collective bargaining agreement has... Uh, expired and you've gone through your cooling off period and you've had mediation and all the rest of it can you actually take that collective step of of, uh, withdrawing your labor so it's very limited but for non-union workers very very little protection from being fired so your boss can essentially fire you for any or no reason um, as long as you're given the required notice period or pay in, in lieu of that notice period. And so those notice periods, they vary from province to province and depending on how long you work there. But that's the basic uh, structure of protections from firing in Canada. The labor law scholar uh, David Dury had a, has a joke that he uses all the time. That your boss could fire you if uh, you're a Leafs fan and he's a Habs fan. Like, There's nothing to protect you. It doesn't matter. No, no reason is necessary. Um, It's only for federally regulated workers and workers in Quebec that have what are called unjust dismissal protections. So basically, there has to be some sort of cause for your firing, or if you're in Nova Scotia, and you've worked somewhere for 10 years, then it kicks in. But for everybody else, which is the vast majority of people, no protection from being fired. So I wrote a piece on this a couple of weeks ago. And basically said that you know this should be a central demand for all all labor activists i think um you know not only would it give more workers power and ownership over their employment which is a good in of itself but it would likely add a layer of protection for workers who are seeking to organize unions i mean yes it's illegal to fire someone for attempting to organize a union but it happens routinely so some greater protections certainly wouldn't hurt.
0: You seem um, relatively optimistic about the the potential for for quiet quitting to be, you know, a tool for building worker solidarity and in turn uh, for fighting for better working conditions. Um, Explain your thinking here and like how it maybe differs from some of the more, you know, cynical uh, attitudes towards uh, the potential of quiet quitting.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, as a writer, one has to remain somewhat optimistic so as to not depress your readers weekly. (laughs) Uh, But I would say, yeah, that I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, You know, as I wrote, I I see the quiet quitting discourse as basically emblematic of these wider trends that we've been talking about. Renewed interest in unions, uh, new waves of organizing in workplaces that have been typically hard to organize, um and you know a willingness to fight back on the part of many currently unionized workers in the face of uh you know the highest inflation we've seen in decades so all those things are good good signs um on the other hand i guess we shouldn't overstretch the facts too much um the labor movement has taken a just terrible beating over the past 4 decades and You know, governments have basically either been indifferent or actively engaged in that beating. (laughs) So we've got a long way to go to dig ourselves out of that hole. But on quiet quitting specifically, what I argue in the piece is that there's at least a recognition, if only implicit, that, you know, this thing, like to address all these problems in the workplace, leaning in or hustling, they're not going to cut it, right? Trying harder than, Or working harder, I should say, than another worker at your job or trying to outcompete them uh, is not only a dead end individualized strategy, but it's also corrosive in the sense that it simply compels everyone else around you to compete with you. And it's in workers' interest to cooperate with one another, to fight their employer, to improve their pay and working conditions, to get the things that they need to make life better, uh, competing with each other for a shrinking piece of the pie. And that gets us nowhere.
0: And a lot of this, uh, a lot of the conversation that we're seeing around this new trend, you know, seems to be kind of born out of uh, internet ephemera, uh, which we know tends to uh, tend to come and go pretty, pretty rapidly. And we've seen, you know, workplace uh, internet fads come and go, like something that looked promising and then kind of washed away within the next week. Um so how do workers transform this uh you know quiet quitting trend into an actual material long-term change rather than just being forgotten as another viral meme or internet fad? Yeah,
1: well, you know, on this I might suggest that the causation kind of goes in the reverse direction. The fact that, you know, you have all kinds of workers who are organizing and and fighting back is really part of the reason that we're talking about something called quiet quitting. So I would say you know, now's the time strike when the iron's hot because this tight labor market isn't necessarily gonna last. I mean, we have every indication from the Bank of Canada that they don't want it to last, right? They're very concerned that it might last, right? Even though there's no evidence whatsoever of a wage price spiral, that is that wages are driving inflation, they are still adamant that preventing, you know, uh, inflationary expectations from getting embedded uh, through wage increases is, you know, a top chore for, for the bank that you have the governor of the Bank of Canada out there telling employers, don't give in to wage demands, like explicitly saying this. So it's not going to last necessarily. And it doesn't seem to be a lot of commitment either on the part of, uh, you know, the federal government to maintain the kind of fiscal stimulus that might uh, encourage, you know, a stimulative recovery. I mean, it looks like they're perfectly willing to abandon it as well. So, you know, I could be overextending the argument a little bit about how promising quiet quitting necessarily might be. But I think generally, you know, the context of the tight labor market and the current sort of structural advantage that workers have is a good way to understand it. And so my hope is that workers, whether they're actually quiet quitting or they're just sympathetic to the idea of it, um, start to talk to their coworkers and think about what it would take to unionize their workplaces. Um, a while back for uh, class struggle, I did an interview with one of the organizers who unionized uh, Chapters Indigo location in Toronto. And one of the things that she made clear and reiterated is that it all started with basic one-on-one conversations, right? Frustration at work, you go out for a drink after to just kind of vent with your coworkers. And the next thing you know, they're talking about, you know, well, actually, what would it take for us to certify a bargaining unit here? and try to address these things. And if you read any of these pieces on Starbucks organizing victories in the United States or in BC and Alberta, it's the same, right? People started by basically just sussing out who's supportive of this thing, having conversations, uh, figuring that out, and then reaching out to uh, a union in your sector or reaching out to a local local labor council or a provincial labor federation if you're not sure um, which unions represent workers in your sector, your industry, so that they can point you in the right direction. And, you know, um, many unions are, are open, they see what's going on. And I hope that the established labor movement, um, you know, catches on to really what is uh, a changing dynamic here of especially young workers who are interested in organizing. You know, just this week I read Sephora in Kamloops, British Columbia, uh, just organized, right? I mean, that's a great victory. Here's a, um, you know, what a retail store basically, but, you know, it's highly, highly profitable. It sells high-end products. Uh, The markup is big, uh, but because they're retail, quote unquote, they pay low wages and they generally get away with, you know, treating people as expendable. Organizing a union there is fantastic. And British Columbia, you know, they recently reintroduced card check certification. So instead of having to collect your union cards and then have a vote, you just have to collect the cards. Now, 55% of workers in the workplace sign cards. You've got your union. So that opens new opportunities there as well. You know, that card checking uh, certification is really important reform. We used to have it here in Ontario up until Mike Harris got rid of it in the 90s. Getting that back would be fantastic, uh, and would only aid these efforts to organize in in retail and in other sectors that are that are difficult to organize. So, I think there's tons of potential um, to build on this. And you know, like I said, I really hope that the established labor movement can find ways and is willing to support uh, what's going on and, and to help young workers uh, and all workers really grow the labor movement.
0: Well, thanks so much for for joining us this week, Adam. That's a lot of uh, really interesting uh, information and important insights there. Are there any resources or places listeners can go to find out more about this stuff?
1: Well, I mean, I would always point them to uh, rankandfile.ca as a great uh, labor uh, resource, labor journalism resource. And then if you're in a workplace and you're trying to organize, like I said, one of the first and best things to do is to reach out to either a union in your sector or a local labour council or provincial labour federation because there are great staff on these things who will point you in the right direction and uh, hopefully help you get the resources you need to get started organising.
0: That's great. Thanks so much, Adam, and uh, take care. Thank you.